the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. With the holidays just around the corner, Macy's makes it easy to get your online orders fast with contact-free curbside pickup or pickup inside the store. Need it now? Try same-day delivery powered by DoorDash, available in select locations. Plus, shop early and late with extended store hours right up to the last minute. And don't forget, if you're getting your purchases delivered by mail, make sure you place your order by December 18th on Macy's.com. Some exclusions apply. Pickup and same-day delivery valid for most in-stock items at select stores only. It's time for Rescuers, the show about people who change and save lives. Now, here's your host, Art Brooks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Rescuers Radio Show, aired on faithtalk1360.com, and uh, all the podcasts are there, former programs. But uh, today I'm just delighted to have this guest. Lisa Kingry uh, is a frontline uh, during COVID, ICU nurse. And I've been trying to get this for some time, and I'm so glad it, it worked out. And you are you you fit the mold, Lisa. By the way, hello. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to Rescuers Radio Show. Thank you. Uh, you said something so poignant in your bio that makes you the perfect guest for Rescuers, which is about people that are changing and saving lives and not wanting to be a hero. The comment was in your bio, I'm not special. I'm just a nurse working in an extraordinary circumstances with an extraordinary team. How awesome is that? I mean, that's really how I feel. Like, I'm not anybody special. There's so many nurses and physicians and respiratory therapists out there doing exactly what I'm doing. And we're just trying to make it through. So Now... You've been. I, I want a little backstory on you. I'd like. I'd like for our audience to get to know my guests. So, how did you get to this point in your life? So, I actually started out in recreation and worked um, in the aquatics portion of that industry for almost twenty years. Really, I was a director at a swim school. I coached diving all the way up from the little bitties all the way through high school and club diving. Um, did my own private swim lessons, all of that. My mom. Um, was an ICU nurse. So she tried to get me to do this for years and years and years. And in recreation, you just don't have like a real steady income. You have to work two or three jobs. It's weird hours, although nursing is weird hours too, but there's no consistency. And so I was always working a ton of jobs. And after I got married, I decided I just wanted to kind of settle down and get one job with good benefits and not have to work seven <laughs> days a week. Now, was all of this here in Phoenix? Yes. 
Yeah, so I grew up in Mesa, and I worked for um, several of the cities, Mesa, okay. Tempe. So I have a question about your uh, aquatic coaching. Any famous swimmers ever come out of your program? Um, probably not out of my specific program, but the whole swimming and diving community is really small. So I know several of oh. the Olympic swimmers, and that's been really fun. Yeah, I think Phoenix is a, a good draw for that. It right? is. <laughs> good place. Uh, and, and Flagstaff, right? Because yeah. they have that new aquatic center and uh, high-altitude training. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually not really familiar with yeah. it because I've been out of it for quite a while yeah. now. But, yeah, Tucson, Flagstaff. So your mom was, was an ICU nurse. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you saw behind the scenes what was going on there and it excited you? Uh, you know, not really, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kind of, the hospital that I work out now, my mom worked out for 35 years. Wow. So I grew up, I'd go into the ICU, go to the the pop machine and get Mountain Dew out of the fountain machine. And, <laughs> you know, we'd go up on holidays and weekends. And I, you know, there's still people there that I know from when I was eight years old that I work oh, wow. with currently. Really? Yeah. So this particular organization has a lot of longevity and, um, it was, I didn't want to be a nurse at all. I actually, when I started at the hospital, I worked in registration just to get my foot in the door. And I thought I would go to school to be a rad tech or a radiation tech. So um, I did an eight hour class where I had to shadow one of our rad techs for the day. And it was super dark and it was the same thing over and over and over again. Not that they don't have specialties and do really cool things, but it just wasn't for me. And so um, that's when I decided I got to figure something else out. And as an adult, my second career, trying to figure this out, I looked into nursing again. And that's how I decided to get back into nursing. And then I, from registration, I went up to the ICU and talked to my mom's manager, said, hey, could, could I work here? And she's like, you don't have any experience. And from my experience in recreation, I had had my EMT certification and all of my CPR and first aid. Yep. So she didn't have to get me any certifications, and she said, fine, you can start tomorrow. And I literally started the next day and wow. and then went through school. The, the hospital put me through school. We had a partnership with um, one of the community colleges, and I did that, and then right back in. My goodness. Yeah. So And, and ICU, just the implication of that abbreviation, it means that that's serious business. It is, very. Yeah, and, and most of the time it's you, you don't know – it's just it's just the the most uh, critical that someone can be in mm-hmm. any shape, right? It is. So, um, so you you had a, a good behind the the scenes growing up seeing this. Mm-hmm. They accepted you right away when you said, "I want to do this." Yep. <laughs> and the only thing you didn't know was covert was coming. COVID, yeah. COVID. I had no idea. Like we say this often. Some of the our intensivists. And some of the other nurses I've worked with, we we say, this is harder right now than the hardest day I've ever worked. And we're a level one trauma center, so we work really hard and we have really sick patients. Mm. And this is the hardest we've ever worked in our careers. And long days, uh, everything changed, right? I mean, yeah, we, we've always done long days. And yeah. if you have a really heavy patient and a really heavy assignment, sometimes you don't get lunch and that it is the way it is. But now... It's not just physically hard, it's emotionally hard. And it's just, it. your brain at the end of the day is exhausted. So I want our audience to, uh, being a radio show, I'd like to have them have a clear picture of what it is to be a critical nurse. 
What is it? What is it like uh, being at the front line of something this serious uh, that nobody really understands? There's no answers. Uh, we just know that it's there and it's real on your end. It's very real. But you not only have the COVID patients, you have other patients in ICU as well. We do. Uh, do you have COVID patients isolated in a different section from everyone else, the crit- even being critical? So when this very first started, we had kind of an action plan. We hadn't seen any patients yet. And then we started to, we heard about that first patient in Arizona. Actually, he was at our hospital. Oh, my gosh. So we immediately, like our directors and administration had already set forth a plan, a disaster plan, essentially. Um, And so we knew that we would start cohorting units. Um, And then our unit is set up as such that we can close doors between different units for the most part, not once it gets, not during the surge. It was just, it was crazy. But so we initially started out with one unit and we had all of, um, all the patients were persons of interest or rule out patients for covid and then slowly we started getting those positive results. So we kept all of those in one area and we segregated our normal ICU population with trauma neuro and the regular patients um, elsewhere. So let's draw a picture for our audience <laughs> uh, of, of what exactly you do, what do you go through, how do you treat uh, how do you accept the patients? How do you, how do you, I know the stress level must be high, uh, but, but paint a picture for us of what it means to be frontline, what it means to be in the most critical of critical situations. And, um, and there's no end to it in this time period. That's a lot. (laughs) Um, So on a normal day, the ICU, you have to really be prepared to get any patient of any acuity level at any time. So that's what we do. It's what we do best. We all swoop in. We get the patient settled. We do what needs to be done, and then we move on to the next set of tasks, and that's our norm. So COVID has slowed that down a bit. We can't just go into a patient room. We have a patient who might be coding where their heart has stopped and we can't just run in and do what we know how to do. Mm. So we still have to put on all of our PPE. I am so fortunate in that my institution has really done a great job taking care of us and making sure that we have what we need to stay safe. I was going to ask about, because during the age of COVID, there's been varying uh, stories Mm -hmm. and we don't know which is correct. Uh, was it hard to get PPE? Was it was it was it incoming all the time? Did you ever have a hard time struggling that you didn't have enough? There, there certainly have been times. I, like I said, I feel really fortunate in that my hospital has always had a really good disaster preparedness plan. Good. Um, however, that being said, when you're instantly looking at going from passing out N95 masks to a few people when they need it to the entire institution that creates some logistical issues. And um, we had to inventory all of our masks every shift. We had to keep an eye on it. Um, We had to lock up our masks because at one point people, and I don't even know who, but people were stealing stuff. And we don't know if it were family members or patients or staff, like nobody knows. So things would just disappear, like our cleaning wipes, masks, gloves, Things like that. So initially, those things started disappearing. So everything had to be locked up, inventoried, and doled out. So you can't just 
walk out of a room and clean your stuff. You had to find the cleaning supplies and do that. Um, Initially, N95 masks were really in short supply nationwide. And so I started out wearing one particular kind of mask. After about six hours, I would break my face down so badly that I actually had wounds on my face of wearing it for six hours. So then I went to a different N95 mask. Then that mask was no longer available, so I went to a different N95 mask. And that's kind of in the course. We've all been fitted for multiple N95 masks now so that when a supply is low or we don't have it anymore, we can go on to the next mask. One of our early guests on the Rescuers radio show happened to be my nephew, lives in Akron, Ohio. He uh, decided he had a, he's really a sharp, genius guy, had a 3D printer. Everybody has one of those at home, right? He had a 3D <laughs> printer, and he started printing silicone or, or some kind of a soft material to hold the masks. Yes. And and he started getting orders from all over the country. To save our ears. Yes. My, one of my girlfriends here in the valley that I grew up with in the aquatic community, she actually made all of our staff little strips with buttons. She probably made 500 of them. Wow. So that we could have those to save our ears. And then my mom and my mother-in-law made um, surgical caps. And another nurse, her, she and her mom made surgical caps because we just didn't have the supply. And then also to save our ears. Yeah. <laughs> so we had people coming out throughout our little community that were helping out with that. Okay. So let's continue on with, <laughs> with uh, the description. So anyway, so, you know, you get your, in the morning we come on. And now that we're in our COVID cohort units, if you're in that unit for the day, we change scrubs, put your shoe covers on, your surgical cap on, um, and then we actually have the full face respirator masks now. And so... What does that look like? Or um, how is that different from the N95? It kind of looks like, you know, a big firefighter mask where they have their SCBAs hooked up to it. So I I think I sent you guys a picture of that. It's... It's literally a full-faced right. rubber silicone something. It straps around your whole entire head, and you have these two big filters on each side of the mask. Yes. And um, so that's what we wear in our COVID units. A few people, we didn't fit them, so they're still wearing their N95s with goggles and face shields. But um, for the most part, we've been able to fit all of our staff with those. My goodness. And then you can also wear them if you're doing special procedures outside the COVID unit. We have some for staff, like if you're doing other procedures that are aerosolizing um, yeah. secretions. So. so you were used to dealing with ICU. Mm-hmm. You, you, you had been in there a long time. Mm-hmm. So it, it probably wasn't alarming to see people on, on the edge of life or death because you see that often, unfortunately, but that's mm-hmm. what you do. And... Uh, was there how did how what was different from then till the COVID era? So the difference now is when you have a crashing and burning trauma patient come in, or like a really good sick surgical patient, or just a good medical patient, and nurses and physicians in the entire medical community, we work on evidence based practice. So we know with these set of circumstances, if we do these things, it will likely work. And obviously, there's only so much we can do, and sometimes, no matter what we do, we can't save somebody. And there are times that that happens. It's pretty rare because we're really good at what we do. Oh, yeah. We're, we have a great, great hospital. But with COVID, everything we do doesn't work. And what we're seeing, and that's been so hard for all of us, is that 
despite our best efforts, despite reaching into the depths of all of the knowledge that we all have and all of the training that we all have, and we have some brilliant physicians, what we're doing doesn't work, and we are seeing person people die. So explain that day to after us. Day what, day. what all of a sudden didn't work? What is that? Well, just this disease process. Yeah. We don't know anything about it. Um, the way that it... So there's a fear factor. Well, the way that it affects the lungs and the organs and the tissues in the body, it doesn't make sense for what we know. Mm. And so what we do is we are, we're so used to being very proactive in our treatment and our care, and we know that we're going to do this and it's going to fix it. With COVID, we feel like we're behind the eight ball every day. We are trying to play catch up. And treatments that would normally work for this severe lung disease aren't working. And so, for example, if you have a trauma patient that goes into adult respiratory distress, you put them in a rotoprom bed and you turn them and you flip them for a day or two and they get better and then you do all the other things. With COVID patients, we turn these people on their faces, on their stomachs, whether in a bed or manually um, in their regular hospital bed or in the rotoprom bed, and they are like that for days and weeks and weeks and weeks. And we try different ventilator settings mm. and they are just so incredibly sick. And, and is so each fragile. case different than the other? Sounds like it um, could be. I don't know. Like we have seen just, it seems like they're all the same. And you know that once you start this course, that nothing we do is going to fix it. So in that respect, they're all very similar. Yeah. Um, maybe people's comorbidities make them slightly different, but this disease process is just so aggressive and and we're just constantly playing catch up and that is the same every day. Yes. So anybody listening to this show when it, when it airs is, uh, if they're thinking, I don't need to wear a mask or I, I don't need this or I don't need that, listening to this is the seriousness of the issue right here. I would really hope that people can think outside of their own bubble. Yes. And, you know, we, we know that the vast majority of people have symptoms and they get better. And then there's another portion of that population that has symptoms and then they do kind of poorly, but eventually they get better. And then there's the population that I see, the ICU population, and they don't get better. And, you know, one of the things that we say is, I don't want to intubate this patient because they're going to die. Mm. But if we don't intubate them, they're going to die. Mm. It's we're just caught in this. You you can't. We don't know how to fix it. And not not to point any fingers, but I I think if when the spike when, when there is a spike, it's usually in that twenty to forty year old mm -hmm. demographic, right? Yeah, that's what we've seen in Arizona in particular. Is yeah. that it's not the elderly population that yeah. is you know has the highest demographic for. Now being there was positive. a problem in the some of the care centers because mm -hmm. of so many people being sure. I I around each other. Mm -hmm. But this is different than that. This is. And if you look at the numbers from Arizona, you'll see that that 20 to 40-year-old demographic has the highest incidence of COVID-positive tests. Mm -hmm. um, and then the next demographic, I want to say, is like 50 to 60 is the next highest. Yeah. And I think you'll see that out and about. Those are the groups of people who don't wear their masks or didn't. I think more people are wearing them now. Yeah, But... Um, and when you see that, they're like, well, I'm young. I'm not going to be that person that ends up in the ICU, but that's not what we're seeing. That's not how this works. We, we yeah. do have an elderly population, you know, 80 and 90, and then we have 60 and 70 who are not elderly, but they are older and maybe have more medical comorbidities. 
but we have had many 30 and 40 and 50 year olds and they don't necessarily make it out we've had 20 year olds my gosh so we it we have seen every age range we've seen every comorbidity we've seen 20 year olds with no comorbidities they and we can't save them and and children can can be affected right absolutely and the problem is they don't know a lot about kids right now yeah we know that children, if they are infected, don't seem to be as sick as adults do, maybe because they don't have the same comorbidities as adults, mm-hmm. um, maybe because one of the common colds that kids get is a COVID um, relative, per se. So, um, is, you know, they, we don't know why. And kids are probably under-tested. So for everybody to say, well, kids don't really get it, that's probably not true because it's so likely that because kids are so asymptomatic that there are many, many kids who have been positive that just haven't been tested. Oh, okay. I, I, um, you know, sports trying to open up in different ways, different (laughs) leagues trying to do different things. Uh, I heard a a number yesterday, the NHL, the hockey uh, teams are playing under a bubble up in Canada Mm -hmm. and they're having a playoff series. (laughs) As of yesterday, the number I heard, they had completed over 7,000 tests of all the players that are there, and they're, they're continually getting tested. 7,000 tests and not one positive. Well, that means they're doing really good um, preventative measures. Yeah. But isn't that a shame that they can do that for professional sports, but we can't figure out education? You'd think. <laughs> All the money. <laughs> you and, would then, think. And then you look at the... <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Sorry. There's no, no, no. Plant right there. Throw it in there. <laughs> but, you know, and then you look at the Major League Baseball, and they're having positive after positive after positive. So mm-hmm. what is it that the hockey players are doing differently than Major League Baseball when they have almost unlimited funds? Right. So how are they continually testing positive when, you know, they don't have to worry about a budget per yeah. se? Yeah, like, he, even the NBA so. seems to be doing better, mm-hmm. but baseball, I'm not sure they're going to make it through this 60-game season. <laughs> I'm not but, sure how they're going to make it. But I'm glad you brought up the education factor because uh, here we are. You know, the mm-hmm. um, at some point, schools have to open, and they're going through a spell right now where they are opening either at some level, whether it's with students or without students, and that's the big controversy. So... Um, How's that testing going to be is another great question out there. Well, I think the schools are underfunded at baseline. And to ask teachers to go back into the classroom and do what we do in the hospital at a really high level of effectiveness with six- and seven-year-olds or even teenagers is a really unrealistic standard to set for anyone. I mean, teachers weren't trained on PPE. They don't know how to don and doff gowns and gloves and masks and things appropriately. It's not what they were trained to do. And yet now we're asking teachers to learn how to do all of this in addition to teaching. So uh, just a thought in my own head, my own little pea brain, as I refer to it. Uh, what, what if somebody, what if they came up with an idea of plant, of, of not planting, but having uh, in every school a person that is that does know their way around that world and does know how to do an adequate test and uh and and have have the right equipment is that even a possibility it's very expensive probably 
I, I mean, I think anything's possible if yeah. you have enough money. Enough money, yeah. And, you know, like I said, teachers are already underfunded, and yet they're talking about, you know, minimizing classroom sizes. Yeah. But how are we going to do that? Because teachers are already overfilled in their classrooms. I mean, my son's kindergarten class, I think, started out with 21. By the end of the semester, it was 30. Five-year-olds, wow. five- and six-year-olds. Wow. Well, and they have to figure out, okay, if, if they're going to be online – I need a I need a syllabus for for the online students. Then I need a syllabus for those that are going to be in class, uh-huh. whether it's twenty five percent or fifty percent, whatever that ends up being. Mm-hmm. And it just adds more to the uh, to the issue. It's just hard. Yeah. And I think teachers just are going to suffer with this. Yeah. You know, my we're doing online right now, and it's a struggle, and it's really hard. And I have all the opportunity in the world to do a great job with this, and it's hard for us. Mm. I can't even imagine those students that don't have what I have in my house to be successful. Lisa, we're in our last minute and a half of the program. We This has just (laughs) flown by. I know it. (laughs) I know it. So um, uh, in the age of of COVID, uh, everybody's going to have a story Mm-hmm. way past COVID, what's your story going to be? <laughs> I think that, you know, what I would want people to know is that we worked so hard mm-hmm. and there are some really great minds working on trying to figure all of this out. And we just really have to come together as a community and we have to look out for the neighbor, your neighbor, the person next to you. You don't know what they're, what's going on in their world. And so as a community, we have to come together to protect each other. Well, you ob- obviously are in the uh, epicenter of <laughs> yes. of not only changing lives, but saving lives. And that's what yes. the Rescuers Radio Show is all about. Lisa, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Great to get to know you. Thank you. Thank you. Rescuers, Thursdays at 5.30 Arizona time on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ AM.